This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Moy Lothi McLean and tonight I have the great pleasure of being joined by political economist Kieran Andreu. Kieran. Moya, thank you for having me on. Nice to be here. I'm keen to get your thoughts on all tonight's stories. And coming up later tonight, we'll have updates on the situation in Palestine as the IDF surround Gaza City. We'll also be discussing the conditions that Palestinian prisoners are facing in the occupied territories. And of course, we will be talking more about this weekend's National March for a Ceasefire, which is taking place in London. Firstly, though, Suella Bravman is doing a little bit of freelance journalism. In a break with protocol, and apparently with the Prime Minister, she's launched a scathing attack on the Metropolitan Police in The Times. In the piece, she accuses the Met of playing favourites when it comes to protesters and calls for them to be more even-handed. The article comes in the wake of the Met's decision to allow Saturday's National March for Palestine in London to go ahead. Broverman had vigorously opposed the event, calling it, quote, a hate march, and reportedly pressured police to ban it. They refused to do so, with Met Commissioner Mark Rowley saying there was no legal basis for a ban. Broverman has long been a fan of division, and in her article, she doesn't hold back. Here's what she says about the Palestine marches. From the start, these events have been problematic not just because of violence around the fringes, but because of the highly offensive content of chants, posters and stickers. This is not in the time for naivete. We have seen with our own eyes that terrorists have been valorized, Israel has been demonized as Nazis, and Jews have been threatened with further massacres. Now, I haven't seen any or heard any of these highly offensive chants and posters, but maybe Suella was on a different march, one that matches her politics more. Braverman went on to make a political comparison. Here we reach the heart of the matter. I do not believe that these marches are merely a cry for help for Gaza. They are an assertion of primacy by certain groups, particularly Islamists, of the kind we are more used to seeing in Northern Ireland. Also disturbingly reminiscent of Ulster are the reports that some of Saturday's march group organisers have links to terrorist groups, including Hamas. Well, there's a sentence that's laughably confused. Braverman claims that marches for Palestine assert the primacy of so-called Islamists, something we're supposed to object to. But the comparison she then makes is with marches in Northern Ireland, which she says also assert the primacy of the group marching. What group in Northern Ireland is that, Suella? It's the Unionists, the very people that you were in government with just a few years ago, the Orange Order. Something tells me that Suella Braverman didn't mean to accuse Irish Unionists of having links to terrorist groups. She has, in fact... Uh, said it's the Republicans, but, you know, stopped clocks and all that. Um, But if that historical gibberish was not enough, Breverman then goes on to legitimise the grievances of elements of the far right. Unfortunately, there is a perception that senior police officers play favourites when it comes to protesters. During COVID, why was it that lockdown objectors were given no quarter by public order police, yet Black Lives Matter's demonstrators were enabled, allowed to break the rules, and even greeted with officers taking the knee? She must have been some very different protests than I was. Right-wing and nationalist protesters who engage in aggression are rightly met with a stern response, yet pro-Palestinian mobs displaying almost identical behaviour are largely ignored, even when clearly breaking the law. I've spoken to serving and former police officers who've noted this double standard. 
Football fans are even more vocal about the tough way they are policed as compared to politically connected minority groups who are favoured by the left. It may be that senior officers are more concerned with how much flack they are likely to get than whether this perceived unfairness alienates the majority. The government has a duty to take a broader view. I mean, I've heard a lot of things from the office of Suella Braverman, but trying to argue that the police are on the side of BLM protesters really takes the biscuit. And yes, Suella, maybe football fans should be less policed in that case, rather than upping the heavy-handedness with which all protest is greeted by police. As it stands, far-right groups like Turning Point UK are already organising to disrupt Saturday's march. They shared this threat to the Met Police on Monday. If you ban the pro-Palestine march, we'll call off all our people and contacts for Saturday. One-time offer with a 24-hour expiry date. According to the police, far-right groups carry a major threat of disorder this weekend, albeit maybe just a threat to themselves, because Turning Point UK are now organising a counter-demonstration to the peace march, except it won't be anywhere near the Palestine march, because Turning Point UK will be at the Cenotaph to defend the monument, miles away from the Palestine march route. And I I just want to share a little something with you, which is Turning Point UK has now realised that they won't be anywhere in the Palestine march, and now they're really cacking it. In, in the technical terms, they've published their schedules and rules for the event. And it opens like this. Obviously, it's a free country and people can do as they please, but don't fall into their trap. We're there to stand up for the legacy of those who made the ultimate sacrifice and nothing else. So they are going to turn up when the two minute silence is in place, when, as they point out, the war widows are laying wreaths. But they're having to tell people now not to bring flags or banners. uh, And also the frontline police officers are not the enemy. However, they will be under orders to provoke those attending to distract the public from why they haven't properly policed the Palestinians. Be aware the police may be acting provocatively. Don't rise to it. They also say be aware of bad actors or agents in the crowd who may be trying to cause trouble. Translation, they've realised that if they gather in the centre of London, any disruption in that part of London will be solely down to them because the Palestinian march, as they put it, will be absolutely miles away. So any disorder with the police will be fully on turning point and they are bricking it because they know there will be disorder. But we shouldn't forget why they're even there in the first place. It's thanks to the UK's actual Home Secretary essentially encouraging them to feel even more angered by a peaceful protest than they already do. Rishi Sunak is now reportedly considering sacking Suella Braverman, not least of all because Downing Street claims Braverman's article was not approved by its internal editors. It's understood that edits were suggested by Downing Street, but some significant changes weren't accepted by Braverman's office before publication. On Sunak's views on the matter, The Guardian reports this. The PM's spokesperson indicated that Rishi Sunak does not accept Braverman's claim that the police are biased against right-wing protest groups and in favour of left-wing ones like the Palestine Solidarity Campaign. The spokesperson also indicated that Sunak did not agree with the claim that pro-Palestinian marches are like the marches in Northern Ireland. Asked if the PM agreed with his claim, the spokesperson said Sunak had expressed his own thoughts about protests yesterday. Asked again if the PM was comfortable with the Northern Ireland comparison, the spokesperson said these were, quote, not the words the Prime Minister would use. Really hilarious, that Northern Ireland example. She knows nothing about the region, does she? Uh... One thing the article does seem to have done is unite MPs across the political spectrum against the out-of-control Home Secretary. 
Political figures from every side are reported to have now called for Sunak to sack Braverman. This was London Mayor Sadiq Khan's view of the article. I think it is appropriate for the Home Secretary and myself to provide overnight, uh, oversight and uh, scrutiny. Of course it is. I think it's not appropriate for us to be actively and publicly intervening and influencing what are operational policing decisions. I've read with care Home Secretary's article in the Times. It is inaccurate. It is irresponsible. It stokes divisions. It is in danger of dividing communities. It reinforces stereotypes. It makes sweeping generalizations. And I think we've got to be incredibly careful. Are we really saying that politicians, whether it's Home Secretary or myself, or the Prime Minister should be telling the police which protests to allow and disallow. What's next? Telling the police who to investigate, who to arrest, and we should be really careful and understand the law in this country. Since 1986, we've had a Public Order Act, which does allow the police, does allow the police to ban protest if there is intelligence and a threshold is met that there's going to be serious disorder. If the Home Secretary has intelligence has information, she should provide it to the police. I agree. If the Home Secretary has the intelligence, she should show some evidence of it. Braverman's article is also causing infighting in the Conservative Party, with the Times' chief political correspondent reporting this. As the day wears on, Tory MPs are becoming increasingly incensed. One dubs the row Suella Gate and says, quote, there's going to be all-out civil war imminently. Another says, quote, it feels to me there is a febrile atmosphere like you had a few days before Liz Trust went. If there's going to be all-out civil war, what has been happening in the Tory party for the last two years? I absolutely dread to think what all-out civil war looks like. Um, also, please retire Gate as a suffix for any political happening, whatever. Um, but meanwhile, the party's whips are gearing up for a fight too. GB News' Christopher Hope reports this. Tory MPs tell me that government whips are now ringing them to ask for their views on Suella Braverman's comments in the Times on policing, quote, double standards. Now that means that the whips are checking to see how much support Braverman has left among Tory MPs before deciding whether to sack her or not, which comes across from Rishi Sunak's perspective as pretty weak. Kieran, what is Suella's Braverman's plan here? Does she really hate Palestine or is this part of a wider strategy? Well, she probably does hate Palestine, but that's probably a happy coincidence. Um, I think Suella Braverman has been on a journey for several years now to present herself as the most willing to align, to be aligned with the far right, to say the most outrageous things, to engage in populist right-wing um denialism and i think that this is probably the latest example of that i think she's clearly trying to it's probably obvious to everybody that she's trying to jockey for a position of power post sunak and thinks that by doing this sort of thing she can capture the kind of gb news and to the right of gb news uh, audiences and voters. And I think denigrating a Palestinian demonstration is an extremely effective way of doing that. Tying it up with Armistice Day or trying to tie it up with Armistice Day is an effective way of doing that. Of course, in this case, it, it has been ineffective. And, you know, um, 
not often we have cause to say hooray for institutions, but I think on this occasion, you know, things have, uh, there has been obviously a backlash against her lone ranger approach on this. Nonetheless, uh, I, I think it could very easily have gone the other way. I think that, you know, there was a lot of contingency in all of this. There was a lot of contingency uh, early on. And I think the Met has come out of a strong position and therefore Swella Bravman has obviously been forced to back off. But we've been hearing grumblings about these Palestine demos and more than grumblings, of course, ter- terrible defamations about them from the start, despite the fact that we've had three demonstrations now huge national demonstrations, I should say, of course, many others uh, localized and very, very few arrests, a, a great deal of peaceful protesting. And yet uh, that does nothing. It seems to dampen the the more kind of vulgar critiques of the demonstrations. The other thing, if I may, Moya, just quickly, I wanted to say, I think it's probably an obvious point to, to everybody listening and watching, but what this another thing this does is it shows the utter malleability and superficiality of uh, the those that claim to consider free speech as something sacred or sacrosanct. I, I, we know that already, but it's fresh evidence that it's merely a plastic concept that can be deployed and removed in um, you know in a culture wars setting. I think vulgar critiques is such a great way to frame what Suella Braverman is saying and doing. Earlier today, I spoke to one of the organisers of the march taking place in London this Saturday. Chris Nynam is a founding member and vice chair of Stop the War Coalition. We're calling for you know the most massive demonstration, but also one that is very unified and very disciplined and very clear in what our messaging is, the call for a ceasefire, the call for free Palestine the call for an end to the horrendous and brutal onslaught on Gaza. The Home Secretary has repeatedly designated these marches as hate marches, which is a very extreme way of characterising a protest that is for peace. How do you respond to that? It feels like we're in a kind of looking glass world at the moment where, you know, those of us, the hundreds of thousands of people um, actually representing the overwhelming majority of opinion in Britain who are marching for peace against the killing of uh, innocent people, against the bombing of hospitals, against the bombing of refugee camps, against the, the what is essentially a kind of ethnic cleansing, obviously, that is going on in Gaza. Those of us who are taking that position are being characterised as hateful on the one hand and potentially violent on the other by people who are supporting that onslaught. It's an upside-down world we're in at the moment, and um, we just have to keep putting our case. And I think that, you know, it's very encouraging the support we're getting for the demonstrations, but also it's clear that we're winning the arguments in general in society, partly the very reality of the horror that people are seeing on their uh, on their screens is, is, is also obviously winning um, uh, people over to the position that there has to be a ceasefire. So we are on the majority side here, and that gives us uh, a lot of confidence. Um, with the question of the armistice, which obviously has been um, the right of attempt to kind of 
use against us. I think we're also winning that argument, really. I mean, it just seems entirely appropriate for people to be protesting and demonstrating against a horrific war on the anniversary of the end of uh, the First World War, which was obviously one of the most horrific uh, catastrophes of the 20th century. So I think that message is getting across uh, across as well. And also, clearly, we've put out from the beginning that we were never, despite despite the talk from the authorities and from the politicians, we were never planning to march anywhere near the cenotaph. We obviously have the fullest respect for people who are commemorating the end of uh, the end of the First World War and, in a certain sense, the end of the Second World War as well. We have no argument that is entirely in keeping with the kind of uh, the message that we're putting out. Ceasefire and armistice are the same things. Were you surprised, though, by Labour's failure to call for a ceasefire? Because that feels like it should be divorced from, you know, our our tawdry left or right politics. That feels like a basic tenet of humanity. Stop the fighting. Let's move towards a peace process. I mean, it is really shocking. Yeah, it is absolutely outrageous in the face of the, 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 the reality that we're all having to watch of, you know, the, the, the brutal suppression of the Palestinian people. I mean, it's, it's almost beyond comprehension that, that anyone would oppose calls for a ceasefire, and in particular, obviously, the leader of the Labour Party and, and let's face it, the bulk of the leadership of the Labour Party. I mean, it is shocking. It is absolutely scandalous. Um, they got locked into this, as I say, this kind of um, obsessive campaign against the left that they no doubt believe is the key to restoring or to gaining popularity, but they're completely misunderstanding the mood in the country, as the last uh, few couple of weeks have shown. The most recent opinion poll showed 76% of the population called for a ceasefire. So, you know, they're in a tiny, well, not a tiny minority, but they're, they're very marginal in terms of um, uh, 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 overall public opinion in Britain. And, you know, they're completely wrong. This is the, absolutely the wrong way to go. I mean, what it's clear, what it shows is that there needs to be a, there needs to be a kind of um, a revival of a serious left project in Britain, in my opinion. Stop the War has actually been positioned as this extreme radical organisation by Keir Starmer, uh, particularly last year around your campaign against the Ukraine war. How do we get to a place where a Labour leader is characterising an anti-war organisation as something extreme? I mean, I think it's a product of uh, a number of things. It's a product of, a, in general, geopolitical terms, I guess, the situation has become considerably tenser over the last few years with the war in Ukraine, the growing tension with China, and now the uh, the sort of uniquely right-wing and aggressive government in Israel pursuing the Palestinians in what looks like being an almost permanent war. So there's a there's a geopolitical dimension to this which is creating a lot of stress and a lot of tension in many countries and definitely in Britain. I also think, obviously, Starmer's kind of, and the rights in Labour's defeat of the Corbyn project um, since, you know, 2019, 
is 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 obviously a major factor here. There's a kind of counter-revolution going on uh, inside the Labour Party as a response to what was um, the most effective left-wing takeover of the party there's probably ever been. Um, and, you know, that continues, and no doubt those two elements, the the um, the kind of increased tension around the world and the battle against the left in British society, partly being conducted by the right wing of Labour, have, 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 have kind of overdetermined the moment. And so I think we're seeing, I mean, what we're really seeing is a, is a, is a polarisation in society with the whole, or pretty much the whole of the establishment united around a hard line, a hard pro-Israeli line and a hard line against the left. And on the other hand, you know, a massively growing movement in support, in sympathy with the Palestinian people. And I would argue, actually, on the ground, a kind of resurgence of left-wing ideas in a, in a uh, kind of unorganised and maybe quite unfocused way. But certainly this campaign has given that, you know, in the midst of the darkness and the horror of what is going on in the Middle East, it has given that mood of opposition to the establishment it's given it a focus and it's given it something to rally around and let's face it that that has been very effective and we have pushed back the prime minister the home secretary the leader of the labor party the police you know it's been quite an incredible few days really obviously stop the war was founded in 2001 uh, it became this huge force ahead of the invasion of iraq you were a founding member. You were involved in those Iraq war protests, the biggest Britain has ever seen. Has the attitude to protest coming from the state changed since you helped organise those Iraq war protests? I definitely think it has changed. Um, it's worth remembering, though, that we did face um, attempts to stop those protests happening as well. There was a famously... It was 10 days before the biggest demonstration on February the 15th, 2003. Uh, there was a call from the Home Secretary at the time, the Labour Home Secretary at the time, that we shouldn't and wouldn't be allowed to march to Hyde Park um, on the grounds that I think it was too muddy or that we'd spoil, ruin the grass. Um, and that was reinforced by the police. And we had a bit of a confrontation over that. And we, we said, well, I'm sorry. Essentially, we said we are going to march. And um, I think that added a few hundred thousand to the demonstration because it became a little bit like this one has. It became a demonstration partly about the right to protest. Um, so it did, uh, it had that effect. And we also, when we protested against George Bush visiting later in the same year, uh, they told us that um, there was going to be a uh, suicide bomber on the demonstration. And they said we couldn't march down Whitehall because the CIA had told them we couldn't get too near to George Bush. And again, we said, no, well, we're going to anyway. And they actually let us. So we've had some of this before. But I have to say that the kind of suffocating establishment consensus and the kind of broad sweep kind of demonization of pro-Palestinian people at the moment is something I would say that is uh, that is basically reached a new level um, and clearly the kind of rhetoric we're getting from Suella Braverman over the last few days is 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 unprecedented I would say in in British political history I mean at least 
for the last hundred years or so. I mean, maybe I'm missing something, but you know, she has openly said that we shouldn't be allowed to demonstrate that the demonstration should be banned for no particularly good reason. Um, and she is engaged in kind of since we pushed her back, she's now engaged in a kind of attempt to whip up popular opinion against us and in the process, no doubt, mobilise elements of the hard right, the far right, in the streets against the protest. And that is just, you know, this is off the scale, really. And it's, it's very worrying, I have to say. I think it's a very frightening development. Partly it reflects, I guess, or it's a product of disarray in the Tory party. And I think uh, the movement has helped to, to uh, increase that. But partly it does reflect the existence of a kind of strand of hard right politics in British society that we haven't seen for a very, very long time. That was Chris Nynham from Stop the War Coalition. Let's move on to our next story. Diplomats are negotiating for a three-day ceasefire between Israel and Hamas in return for the release of hostages. The details of the proposed deal negotiated by Qatar and the US remain unclear, but sources close to Hamas have told French news agency AFP that talks, quote, revolve around the release of 12 hostages, half of them American, in exchange for a three-day humanitarian pause. In response to reports of an imminent deal, Netanyahu said this last night. I want to put to the side all sorts of idle rumours that we are hearing from all sorts of directions and repeat one clear thing. There will be no ceasefire without the release of our hostages. Of course, it's not clear whether Benjamin Netanyahu is talking about a general ceasefire there or whether he's dismissing any kind of pause in hostilities. But it wouldn't be the first time Netanyahu has rejected any kind of ceasefire deal with Hamas. In early October talks, Netanyahu turned down a ceasefire deal, according to The Guardian. That deal involved an offer from Hamas to release a far larger number of hostages, apparently dozens, in exchange for a five-day ceasefire. Negotiations resumed after 20 cent- the 27th of October Israeli ground invasion. The Guardian reports this. Negotiations resumed after the launch of the Israeli ground offensive on the 27th of October, but the same sources said Netanyahu has continued to take a tough line on proposals involving ceasefires of different durations in exchange for a varying number of hostages. Netanyahu's office has not replied to requests for comment from The Guardian, but internal opposition to his government is building. Israelis are angry at how little progress has been made in securing the release of hostages. And they are calling for Netanyahu's resignation, which means if he refuses another ceasefire and hostage exchange deal, it could be even more politically damaging for him. International pressure on Israel is also mounting. Belgium's Deputy Prime Minister, Petra de Sitter, has called for the country to sanction Israel for, quote, war violence that can never be condoned. While in Spain, Minister for Social Rights, Ioni Bellaria, accused Israel of ethnic cleansing and genocide. Closer to home, the SNP in Westminster is taking a stand too. Scottish First Minister, Hamza Youssef, has said this. The Prime Minister and Keir Starmer don't want Parliament to vote on a ceasefire. The SNP will force a vote so that MPs can vote with their conscience and do the right thing by backing an immediate ceasefire. Too many innocent men, women and children have been killed. 
A vote on that amendment should take place next Wednesday and will either force Keir Starmer to allow a free vote from his MPs or make him whip them into voting against a ceasefire. And a ceasefire is now urgently needed. Heavy shelling continues over all areas of the Gaza Strip. What you're seeing now is Gaza City, but bombs have fallen in the south of the Strip too. That's where most Gazan residents are now after seeking shelter. This follows Israel ordering the evacuation of the north of the territory. Israeli troops have also now surrounded Gaza City as the ground offensive develops, cutting off the north of the Strip from the south, though corridors are being intermittently opened to allow civilians to flee south, albeit under heavy bombardment. A Channel 4 journalist has travelled to Gaza to report under the strict reporting rules of an IDF escort. That means they can't move freely around the area and their footage must be reviewed and approved by the IDF before broadcast. This is part of Channel 4's dispatch. We see two Palestinian men detained, accused of acting suspiciously. The UN says 15,000 people fled south just yesterday though tens of thousands of others still remain. Soldiers call out in Hebrew in case some of the 240 Israeli hostages are being smuggled out too. Footage filmed on the Salahuddin Road by Palestinian journalists gives you a true sense of scale. There are young, there are old, clutching whatever's left of their lives. Across Gaza, one and a half million people, three quarters of the population, have been displaced from their homes. Israel blames Hamas for hiding amongst civilians, but the anger here is directed at those dropping the bombs. There was shelling and bombardment all night long. We have disabled people. We left our home because the whole area was evacuated. We moved to the schools, but the schools weren't safe either. We didn't have any food or water. There is no life in Gaza. This is the hell they're running from. The home of the older Kars family in Gaza City reduced to rubble in an Israeli strike. Israel says it's killing Hamas commanders. But where should Gaza's children, Gaza's parents go? It's impossible for me to imagine how anyone can see that footage and not immediately put all their energy into calling for a ceasefire. It's just not that complicated. While the Palestinians in Gaza are enduring ethnic cleansing, those in the occupied West Bank are suffering assaults, arbitrary arrests and murder. This morning, Israeli forces raided the Jenin refugee camp, killing at least 15 people, according to the health ministry. In response to that attack, Hamas released this statement. The occupation that suffers defeat in Gaza will also suffer defeat in Jenin and will not succeed in breaking the will of our people from Gaza to the West Bank. Resistance is a spirit that runs through us and our people, and we will continue to pursue the occupiers until victory and liberation. It's important to remember that misery and death being inflicted on Palestinians is happening in spaces where they're trapped, and those spaces are shrinking. A majority of the Gazan population has now been squeezed into half the territory, and in the occupied West Bank, 800,000 settlers have encroached on Palestinian territory, stealing land, houses and livelihoods. 
There is one route out for those Palestinians with dual nationality in the far south of the Gaza Strip, if we can call that a route out, it's displacement. Some are still being allowed to leave the territory via the Rafah crossing into Egypt. Not all, though. British doctor Ahmed Sabra was denied the right to leave, and he told the BBC this. I am Ahmed Sabra, uh, UK citizen and NHS consultant. I was uh, trying to escape uh, from Gaza for a month. Uh, as you know, it's been uh, very dangerous for myself and my family. Uh, we thought we made it to safety uh, three days ago when we crossed the uh, border. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, they allowed for my uh, wife and the children to cross, uh, but not myself because I wasn't on, on a list. Uh, we were uh, waiting for uh, three uh, days, uh, myself and other three British uh, nationals, uh, for the British Embassy to help us and to protect us as, as other citizens. Uh, such as the Americans, for instance, uh, but unfortunately they sent us back to Gaza and I am back uh, in Gaza now. This is, I mean, you know, a death sentence and, and it is uh, disgraceful that as a British citizen, I didn't get the same protection as everybody else. So I'm calling for the British government to do their duty and evacuate myself and other British national to safety to go back. Thank you. Kieran, what is your reaction to the increasing displacement of Palestinians in Gaza and the other occupied territories? Mm. Well, um, I think it's probably the right juncture to say that I um, am half Palestinian myself, and I have family living in East Jerusalem who were themselves uh, the products of forced displacement. Um, my grandfather fought in the during the Nakba in the uh, 48 war. That, of course, resulted in the mass ethnic cleansing of 700,000 Palestinians. Um, so it's, in one sense, uh, unfortunately, it's very much part of the Palestinian story um, and, you know, it's half of the course in many ways. Um, however, I think the scale, obviously the scale of what we're seeing at the moment and in the past five weeks is pretty unprecedented, even by Palestinian standards, I'm sorry to say. Um, 10,500 people killed in Gaza. 4,325 of them children, 222,000 houses raised to the ground. Um, it's a scale of destruction that even Palestinians uh, are not used to. I think that, well, we'll come on to it later, I'm sure, about solidarity, international solidarity, but it really is at the moment the, uh, the last refuge, I think, for many Palestinians, um, both inside the occupied territories, inside Gaza, of course, and in the diaspora. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I would love to talk about international solidarity a bit more later, but it has been, people have been saying to me, you know, I find myself, even as someone who's very active uh, politically for the entirety of my adult life, this has been a radicalizing moment to a degree I didn't even realize was still possible with someone like me. Uh, and 
the idea that we'd be knitting these struggles back together is one of the galvanizing ones that's come out of it. Uh, let's move on to the next story. And I do want to give a quick warning. There are really graphic descriptions of torture coming up, so bear that in mind. Israel is using a range of brutal tactics in its military campaign against Gaza and in the occupied Palestinian territories. Israel is accused of multiple human rights violations in the Gaza Strip, including these white phosphorus and collectively punishing the Palestinians there. But over in the occupied West Bank and in Israel, there has been an escalation in another technique designed to sow fear and terror. Rates of administrative detention of Palestinians have skyrocketed since the 7th of October. Administrative detention is the arrest and indefinite detention of people without giving them a trial. The human rights organization, the Palestinian Prisoners Club, have reported that in the past four weeks, at least 2,200 Palestinians have been detained by the state of Israel. As of the 1st of November, Israel says it's holding more than 6,000 800 Palestinian detainees in prisons across the occupied territories and in Israel. The looming threat of arbitrary detention is part of a campaign of suppression and fear. This video, verified by Al Jazeera, shows the moment a Palestinian woman and her husband were arrested in Israel this week for changing her WhatsApp status. <laughs> Now, she was detained on the grounds of new emergency laws that have come in since Israel has launched its military campaign. And that is a harrowing watch. Her terror is palpable and sadly, with good reason. Uh, warning now that this next video is really graphic and it shows Palestinian men detained in the West Bank, apparently being abused by Israeli soldiers. They're shown tied up. Some are stripped naked. And one is kicked in the head before being dragged away. Israel has not denied the authenticity, the authenticity of this footage. The use of torture and inhumane treatment of Palestinian prisoners in Israel, in, in Israeli detention, has been well documented for decades. But human rights organizations say detention conditions are worsening amid Israel's military assault against Gaza. On the 8th of November, Amnesty International released new analysis detailing the plight of detained Palestinians. The organisation wrote this. Testimony from released detainees and human rights lawyers, as well as video footage and images, illustrates some of the forms of torture and other ill treatment prisoners have been subjected to by Israeli forces over the past four weeks. These include severe beatings and humiliation of detainees, including by forcing them to keep their heads down, to kneel on the floor during inmate count and to sing Israeli songs. As part of the analysis, Amnesty interviewed recently released detainees. One Palestinian man who spoke to researchers recounted how he had been initially held and beaten by Israeli settlers in the occupied West Bank on the 12th of October. Two hours after his initial illegal detention, an Israeli military jeep arrived at the scene, but... Rather than order the settlers to release the man, this is what he told Amnesty International that IDF soldiers did next. One of the Israeli soldiers who came approached me and kicked me on my left side. 
then jumped on my head with his two legs pushing my face further into the dirt, then continued kicking me as I was head down into the dirt with my hands tied behind my back. He then got a knife and tore all my clothes off except for my underwear and used part of my torn clothes to blindfold me. The beating to the rest of my body did not stop. At one point, he started jumping on my back three or four times while yelling, quote, die, die, you trash. In the end, before this finally stopped, another officer urinated on my face and body while also yelling at us to die. Amnesty also heard testimony from two women who were arbitrarily detained 14 hours in a police station in occupied East Jerusalem. They were strip searched and told to curse Hamas before being released without charge. Another recently released Palestinian detainee in occupied East Jerusalem said he was left with bruises and broken ribs by Israeli police interrogators. He said the beatings and humiliation were constant. There have been at least four publicly reported deaths of Palestinian detainees in Israeli detention facilities since the 7th of October. And it feels moot saying this at this point, but Israel's treatment of detainees is a war crime under international law. Torture and ill treatment against protected persons in an occupied territory is a war crime. And detaining people outside that occupied territory, such as moving them from the West Bank to Israel, is also a violation of humanitarian law. What's more, Israel refuses to designate such detainees as prisoners of war. Kieran, why does Israel refuse to apply that designation to Palestinian prisoners? So I think the immediate answer to that is simply that a country does not want to have um, too many prisoners of war or any prisoners of war, ideally, if what it's trying to do is present itself, <clears throat> excuse me, if it's trying to, if it's trying to present itself as normal to the rest of the world. And of course, we know that a huge part of the Hasbara project in Israel and beyond around the world has been to present the state of Israel as totally normal, as part of a Western democratic project in an otherwise febrile and backwards neighborhood of the world. And so when you have things like, when you have marks against your name, like you're the only state on earth that hasn't declared whether you have a nuclear program or not. You're the only state on earth that hasn't declared where your borders are. You're the only state on earth uh, well, you're a state on earth with a great number of political prisoners, at least with, uh, uh, within the context of a state that would call itself a democracy, a tremendous number of political prisoners. It then becomes extremely difficult to sustain that Hasbara project that whitewashes Israel's reputation as a state that is fundamentally democratic, but also that meets out the rule of law to all of its not just citizens, but people for whom it, it has declared itself responsible for, i.e. the Palestinians. Um, that immediately falls down when you have such a large prisoner of war population. So that's to the immediate question. I think if I may expand on this a little bit, um, my brother has been in and out of Israeli prisons since he was 12 years old. Um, his initial crime was the crime of throwing stones at tanks uh, close to the Mount of Olives where he was born and raised. He's been, as I say, in and out of prison since he was 12. I 
I think the, the, the thing that's most distressing for my family, at least, is that we have had, for most of that time, no idea where he is. Um, and on top of that, we then receive alarming reports from people at the prison that he is developing things like schizophrenia, but that he that the uh, Israeli jailers are refusing to move him to a medical facility where he can be proper, properly treated as somebody who is developing schizophrenia. Now, you know, I'm talk I'm speaking very personally, but this is. I'm speaking personally because I think it's actually tragically very typical. I think it illuminates something much wider in the Palestinian experience, some of which is demonstrated in the facts that you were uh, reading just now, Moya. Um, so I, and I think that in itself speaks to something else I've noticed many times when I've been to Palestine and through Israel, which is that, and I think it's actually something that's under recognized actually in much of the literature or much of a discourse much of the rhetoric around this which is that when you have uh such a uh, political system I'll call it apartheid call it whatever you would like there is it, it licenses a tremendous deal of arbitrary decision making arbitrary decision making on the part in mo in these in this case for the most part, of Israeli soldiers, people who are pimple-faced and 18, 19 years old, but carrying machine guns. And really, they have a great deal of latitude to decide how they're going to treat Palestinians from day to day. And so I think, unfortunately, the answer to the question, the wider question, why is Israel doing this, aside from the political prisoner designation, uh, point. It's doing it because it can and because it gives, it defers the right to people who otherwise would not have such power under any circumstances, 18, 19 year olds. It gives them that right. And so, in many cases, obviously fueled by widespread racism in Israeli society, they choose to exercise that right. Thank you, Karen, for sharing that personal story and please always feel you can expand further on any comments you make that is exactly why I want to talk to you I also, I also think the the designation when we're talking about prisoners of war prisoners of war uh, I wouldn't say enjoy is the right word but have a certain special status they are protected specifically the same way that protected persons in an occupied territory are under the Geneva Convention so designating someone as a prisoner of war would come with a whole host of violations that Israel are going to definitely do to them but you know, torture, for example, is something that's explicitly prohibited against uh, prisoners of war. So it just bakes on the violations that they are inflicting upon the prison population as part of this campaign of detention as a tool of conflict. Let's move on to our next story. As you might have heard, on Saturday, the 11th of November, a national march for ceasefire in Palestine is taking place in London. It's expected to be big even bigger, perhaps, thanks to the interventions of the Home Secretary. And representatives of several big trade unions will be joining this pro-Palestine march. RMT boss Mick Lynch is one of them. Appearing on Peston, Lynch was asked whether he thought the march would disrupt Armistice Day events. Here's what he said. No, I don't. We're very respectful of the commemorations. We've got members on active service in the Royal Fleet Auxiliary 
in the uh, Middle East now, serving the uh, Royal Marines and the Royal Navy. So we're very respectful of that. We represent the Merchant Navy, who, who gave their lives during both world wars and other conflicts. And we'll be taking part in commemoration ceremonies all around the country at railway stations and at ports and all the rest of it. So uh, we're respectful of that. The march has been organised so it doesn't go near the Cenotaph. It's got no uh, co-location with that. It's going south of the river and it's commencing after the ceremonies, the two-minute silence, which is the important one on the day, and it won't be near any of the other events and we wouldn't be taking part if it did. So we will be campaigning for peace. We want the ceasefire. I think people understand that. We understand people who've got different views. We want peace. We want both sides to stop, stop the war and build that peace. We condemn the murder of the Israeli citizens. Uh, we condemn the atrocities that have been taken out, but we also are not happy, obviously, which what we think is a disproportionate response with so many people being killed uh, in response to that. So we've got to encourage the peacemakers, not the people that want to uh, accelerate the war. Peston also asked Lynch if he thought the chant from the river to the sea is anti-Semitic. Not particularly. I'm not aware that it's anti-Semitic. I've heard Jewish people use that phrase. There'll be Jewish people on the march at the weekend from all sorts of organisations. And it doesn't offend me. If it offends certain people, it doesn't mean the end of the Israeli state. We believe in a two-state solution. And most of the people participating in that will believe that the state of Israel will continue. But we want the Palestinian people to have their space and be able to have freedom and democratic structures and the right to live their lives in peace. Those two things can happen. And the first prerequisite of that is to stop the war and start building peace and making arrangements with uh, willing people to make a two-state solution come about. Kieran uh, might go on to two states in a minute, but uh, something I found really interesting about Mick Lynch is yeah. what he was saying. Uh, his presence even at this march is he's also going to be there along with representatives from the teaching unions, representatives from the fire brigades unions. We've seen internationally a lot of trade unions get involved with pro-Palestine solidarity. You've had Belgian unions. You've had, I think, the, the unions who were blocking exports, I think it was in Barcelona, exports of weapons to Israel. There has been a real workers' movement behind this. Are we starting to see an international solidarity form again that is really rooted in these workers' movements? I hope so. I hope so. And I'm going to optimistically say I think so. I certainly think that Looking at it more broadly, what happened in the 2000s is that civil society, in conjunction with the union movement, some unions more active than others, but broadly speaking, the union movement, coalesced around the idea of an internationalist Palestinian solidarity movement. And civil society was the great addition to that. I think the unions slowly, slowly had been supporting increasingly Palestinians since the 1980s. Civil society was a great addition, and I think that there was a massive groundswell in support for Palestinians. In the 1970s, in the 1970s and 1980s, I mean, I wasn't around, but I don't think many people knew what a Palestinian was. I really don't. That might sound glib, but I think that the perception was the Palestinians, of course, conditioned, mediated highly by the media, the the perception was broadly that the Palestinians were a glorified terror sect in the 1970s. It was Black September, there was the PLO and so on and so on. In the 1990s, 
there was as a meth there was a wave of suicide bombings and by the 2000s violence as a resistance method had largely been rejected or been, been dropped by palestinian internal palestinian resistance movements this then led to it opened up the space for civil society in, as i say in conjunction with unions to more vocally support palestinians and palestine and that's reflected in all sorts of polling data throughout the 2000s and 2010s. I think the trouble, and of course, that's where you start to get things like BDS emerging as a credible, non-violent, economic form of resistance. I think the problem starts when that is that basically is declared anathema in the context of the uh, Corbyn era, but also somewhat before that as well. I think it was vastly hothoused by the Corbyn era, unfortunately, of course, completely uh, unwittingly on Corbyn's part. And I think that then leads to, you know, I'm speaking in dialectics, but I think that then leads to uh, a reverse process where what could be said since the new battlefield was, was words, what could be said about Palestine and Israel is heavily reverse engineered and heavily gerrymandered so that uh, what was acceptable uh, barely raised an eyebrow in 2009, 2010 when speaking about uh, the occupation, pressure of Palestinians, et cetera, et cetera, suddenly becomes synonymous with anti-Semitism and completely unacceptable in polite society. That is an extremely effective uh, process. And I know I've digressed slightly from your question, but I think it's it, what I, I suppose all of that is a way of leading us to the question about trade unions now. If trade unions and if civil society inside Palestine, but of course around the world critically, could join hands effectively, seize on this moment um, and build lasting solidarity, sustainable solidarity, and I think all importantly, not be browbeaten, not be browbeaten when inevitably the same kinds of forces come after Palestinian solidarity in this context, then there will be um, then there will be a, a resurgence of Palestinian solidarity in the context of the union movement and beyond. I, well, I totally agree. I, I was actually quite interested in getting your thoughts on what Mitt Lynch said. You know, he trotted out the two-state solution line. This might be a thorny question. Uh, Craig Mockbeer, yeah. who recently resigned from the UN in a, in a bombastic resignation letter, was on Al Jazeera this morning saying, privately, two state is dead, one state is the way forward. I, I wondered if you had any thoughts on this and Mitt Lynch returning to, you know, well, we want to see a two-state yeah. solution. Sorry, what was the quote? It was two states is dead, one state is the only that's, one. For. Yeah, that yeah. was Craig Mockbeer, okay. the UN official, but Mick yeah. Lynch was saying, well, we want to see a two state, that's what we want. I mean, I think that two states is probably dead at this point. Um, I don't hate the two, uh, excuse me, I don't hate the two state solution. And I don't think that wearing as a badge of honor, as I fear some people do, that, you know, if you're if you're on the two state side, you're somehow sort of establishment lackey or something i don't like that kind of polarization or divisive uh, approach to all of this i think the two-state solution was a credible position for a very long time i think the one-state solution is probably the most plausible route at this point in time 
to a democratic settlement for all people in the territories. And as a way of beginning the very difficult process of answering the right of return question. Um, so though I don't, you know, I don't enjoy two-state bashing, I think it's a shame that the two-state solution is, as far as I can see, largely implausible now. Um, I do think it's largely implausible. I think the main problem uh, in the two-state solution is that is is the the what's called the problem of contiguousness. In other words, that Gaza and the West Bank do not touch one another, are, are separated by Israel. Um, it's, it, it would be a very serious logistical barrier to any two-state solution. And in the end, the one-state solution doesn't really require anything more radical, if you think about it, than just giving everybody the same rights in the territory. Uh, you know, purportedly, and I use that, I, I emphasize purportedly, purportedly a very European Western idea. Um, it would just require that everybody is given the same rights in the territory, is conferred with the same rights within the territory. Of course, it would also require that you rip down lots of hardware, military hardware, watchtowers, barbed wire walls, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, not with the leave, it would be that. And just quickly, I know you'll be at the march on Saturday. If you were speaking, if you were speaking to an audience member who was wavering, what would you say about why you feel it's important to attend if possible? I would, <clears throat> I would say, um, first of all, that it's given me lots of personal strength as somebody whose family lives under occupation. Um, but it's not about, obviously it's not about me. I would say that the, my family that I speak to, the community in the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem that I speak to, all know that this is happening. Be in no doubt, they're all aware that this is happening. Um, one of the blessings of the internet, they're all aware and they're, they're all part of wider networks in the West Bank of people who are also aware. And it's providing them with immense sucker at what is an otherwise extremely, uh, extremely difficult time. So if anybody's wavering, they should think about that. They should also think about a man, I won't give his name, but I remember his name. He's somebody I met in East Jerusalem when I was there. I met him during Ramadan. Um, and the whole place was deserted except for he and I. And he said to me, though facts on the ground dictate that everything has got worse here, they have got the only thing that has got better for us is that international public opinion has shifted. And you now know that we exist. And that does mean something to us. Don't think it doesn't. That's what he said to me. So I would also remind them of that. And I would also just say on the Armistice Day, she, objecting to marching for an armistice on Armistice Day is a bit like objecting to reading poetry on National Poetry Day. So let's read poetry on National Poetry Day and let's march for an armistice on Armistice Day for joining me tonight i hope we can have the pleasure of your company again in the very near future well thank you so much for having me and uh i'm going to take that as an implicit offer and i'm going to say yes <laughs> that was an implicit offer it was actually an explicit offer uh thank you everyone who's been tuning in the show will be back again tomorrow from 6 p.m for now you have been watching navarra media good night 
This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com support.